Recently, I was watching an interview on YouTube, and at one point, the interviewer asked a particular question, and the person that was being interviewed, although they had been through many interviews, they paused for a moment and they said, you know what? I've never been asked that question before. And so it caused them to kind of pause for a second and, and give that question some extra thought. Well, in the passage of Scripture that we're going to look at in just a minute, we're going to find a question that many people hear it and they say, at least in their minds, you know, I've never been asked that question before. And as it turns out, it is the defining question of each one of our lives. And I know that sounds very dramatic and provocative to say that maybe, like I'm exaggerating, but quite literally, the way that each one of us answers this particular question will change the course of each one of our lives, not only in the present, but in eternity. So, do you have your Bible open to Mark 8? We'll start reading in verse 27 in just a moment. Let me um, say another word. If you've been with us for a while, um, you know that I did not randomly choose this passage out of a hat, nor did I, you know, wake up one day this week and drop my Bible on the table and hope that it fell open to whatever passage God wanted me to preach from this week. You know, rather, that we've been studying through the Gospel of Mark for some time now, and we've just been going verse by verse. And so today, we've simply come to this passage. And I believe that that's the best way to do that. I, I believe that all Scripture is inspired by God, and all of it is profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the people of God might be equipped for every good work that He intends us to do. I take that from 2 Timothy 3. This is exactly what it says. And if every word of God is profitable in that way, then it would be wise for us to study it in a systematic fashion where we cover every word of it as much as we can in our lifetime. So here we are, and may the Lord do his work on us now as we consider this passage. So let's read it. Mark 8, 27 to 33 is where we'll stop today. And I always like to remind you before we read it out loud, this is the word of the living and true God. May we hear it and read it as such. It says, and Jesus went on with his disciples to the villages of Caesarea Philippi. And on the way, he asked his disciples, who do people say that I am? And they told him, John the Baptist. And others say, Elijah. And others, one of the prophets. And he asked them, but who do you say that I am? Peter answered him, you are the Christ. And he strictly charged them to tell no one about him. And he began to teach them that the Son of Man must suffer many things and be rejected by the elders and the chief priests and the scribes and be killed. And after three days, rise again. And he said this plainly. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him. But turning and seeing his disciples, he rebuked Peter and said, Get behind me, Satan, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Amen. So, Jesus and his disciples, they've left Bethsaida where Jesus has healed a blind man. 
They're traveling north toward a place called Caesarea Philippi, and it was a long trip. It was about 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. It would have been quite a trip for them. So there was plenty of time to talk. There was time to teach, and the master teacher would not squander an opportunity to do those things while they traveled. It's a great example to us, actually. You know, Deuteronomy chapter 6 talks about loving the Lord with all your heart and your soul and your strength and meditating on the Word of God to the degree that you use every opportunity possible to teach and instruct the ones that God has put in your care and has put around you in your sphere of influence. So here we see Jesus obeying that command, teaching those who have been put in his care as they travel. This is his spiritual children his disciples. And <clears throat> the passage that we just read, it is really um, a big turning point in the book of Mark in many ways. It comes right in the middle of the book. This book has 16 chapters, and here we are in chapter 8. And it hinges around this question and this answer. And I told you earlier that this passage contained a question that each of us has the answer. And I told you that the way in which we answer will change the course of our lives, both presently and in eternity. So let's, let's consider it here. They're traveling towards Caesarea Philippi, and Jesus starts asking these questions. And the first question is kind of a leading question. It's not the main question. He's leading up to something. First he says, you know, who do people say that I am? So he kind of begins this line of questioning. And we can already see what it's centered around. It's centered around Jesus' identity. What are people saying, gentlemen? What have you heard? Who are they saying that I am? What is the popular opinion of me? And they answer his question. You know, they say, some people are saying that you're John the Baptist. And it kind of sounds funny to us at first, but if we think back a few chapters, there was a really prominent person who held to that very theory. Do you remember that? King Herod. King Herod was haunted by this righteous man that he beheaded. And so when this other righteous man, Jesus, starts gaining fame in his territory, he says, oh my goodness, it's John the Baptist come back to haunt me. <laughs> That's Mark chapter 6. It says, but when Herod heard of it, he said, John, whom I beheaded, has been raised of course, at that point when we already covered that, but Mark takes the time there to kind of break away from the story and do a flashback to how that actually happened. And we went through all the twisted details of how Herod killed John. So there were some superstitious people who thought Jesus was John and that he had been raised from the dead. Other people thought, it was, or thought Jesus was Elijah. Verse 28, Elijah, of course, was an Old Testament prophet who he performed many miracles. You can read about his ministry all through 1 Kings and 2 Kings. God clearly was working through Elijah, giving him the power to do these miracles. And so some said, hey, this must be Elijah come back from the dead. Look at all these miracles this guy Jesus is doing, just like Elijah. And still other people just thought that they weren't willing to pin which prophet he was. They just said, maybe this is a new prophet. He's like one of the old prophets, but he's his own. This is, he's a prophet. Notice that all of those opinions about Jesus, all of these theories, were very positive toward Jesus. You notice that? Really, apart from the um, hostile religious leaders, people thought very positively of Jesus. 
The religious leaders, of course, were their own thing. They, they thought, we already looked at it, they thought Jesus was casting out demons by the power of Satan. You remember that? And Jesus told them, that doesn't even make sense, guys, and he refuted that in Mark chapter 3. But apart from them, most of the people around that time had, had a very positive view of who Jesus was. Either he was John the Baptist, who was a righteous man, even Herod said he was a righteous man, or he was Elijah, one of the most well-known godly prophets of the Old Testament, or he was some other prophet like Elijah. All those are just positive things. But let me throw out the question here for you to think about with me. Were any of those answers actually correct? No. None of them were right. Was he John the Baptist or Elijah or some other mere prophet like that? No, he was not. And so, although these people had a very positive view of Jesus, they were dead wrong about him. Isn't that interesting? And there are many like that today that they think very positively of Jesus. They, they paint him in a very positive light. He was a great man, but he was just... He was just misunderstood by his contemporaries. I've noticed even, haven't you, that many people who are even hostile towards Christianity, many of them still speak highly of Jesus. In other words, instead of saying that they don't like Jesus or that Jesus was wrong about something, they will instead say Christians are wrong about that, how they interpret Jesus. They don't really go after Jesus because it's undeniable what kind of a person he was. They would just say, no, no, y'all are misunderstanding Jesus. I know better, is what they say. And so when they do that, though, they find a way every time to minimize who he is, like these crowds were doing. He wasn't really who the Bible shows him to be. He was loving. He was a righteous man. He was, you know, he was wrongly convicted. He became a martyr. He was really misunderstood by his uh, peers at that time, the political leaders and so forth, the religious leaders. But regardless, they say, you know, he taught us some great things, some wonderful things that all of us should follow. No matter what religion you follow, you should at least follow Jesus' teachings, especially the parts about loving one another. And they'll speak of Jesus that way like a, a spiritual guru of some kind, you know. And I just want to point out to us that these crowds got Jesus wrong and many people today, even though they talk affirmatively about Jesus, they get his identity, the most important thing about him, wrong, and that comes at their detriment. They've twisted his identity into something that makes sense to them. And we could dwell on that for a while and, and do a whole sermon on just that, but just know that Popular opinion about Jesus is most often wrong, even if it's positive. So, let's move on to the real question here, though. That was kind of the leading question that Jesus started his line of thinking and questioning down. Who do people say that I am? And after he hears some of the most popular answers, I guess, he comes to the real question. And this is the first point of four that I have today in our outline. This is, number one, the central question. Here it is. Verse 29. Look at your Bible. Jesus says, after he's heard who all these other people say that he is, he says, but who do you say that I am? The emphasis in the original language, we're told by scholars, is put on the word you. So it's as if he's saying, okay, 
But you, who do you say that I am? That's the gist of what he's asking. And this is life's central question for every single human being on the planet to answer. And either each person is going to have an answer informed by Scripture or their answer is going to be informed by their opinions and their feelings. It's really what it boils down to. It's amazing, by the way, how much stock we put into, especially in our day, it's amazing how much stock we put into our emotions and our opinions when it comes to spiritual and eternal things. Why would we do that? We will carefully, very meticulously think through physical things. Just imagine yourself building an addition on the back of your house or something. You're building this important structure. You don't want it to leak. You don't want any problems. And so we'll double measure and we'll triple measure before we cut, right? We want to make sure this thing comes out right in the end. We're very careful. We don't say, eh, that looks about right. In my opinion, I think that's the right length of board, roughly, that I need right here, so I'll go with that one. We usually don't do that. We're very careful to base our measurements not on our opinions, but by a standard. But for some reason, when it comes to spiritual things or eternal things, many people are willing to be okay with just grounding their entire belief system in opinions and hunches and emotions. Very strange. Especially when God gives us a word from Him about who He is. Gives us 66 inspired books and yet people will put more stock into their emotions and opinions in, instead of what God has revealed. Many won't even read what he revealed. They'll just trust somebody else to tell them what it says. This is an amazing um, affirmation of the doctrine of total depravity. The truth just sits right there at our fingertips on the shelf and yet we'll look for truth elsewhere. I encourage all of you today, base your answer to this central question on what the Word of God says. Do not base it on your emotions or your opinions or popular opinion. There's plenty of so-called spiritual gurus who will claim to be spiritual, who claim to this or that or claim to know best who Jesus was, but all of their opinions are worthless compared to the solid information that God himself has revealed to us in his self-revelation, the Bible. So make the word of God your standard for everything, certainly for your view of who Jesus was. And don't even take my word for it. Go to Scripture. Don't believe anything I say unless it lines up with Scripture. And so let's get back to this idea of the central question. Jesus is just getting down to the, to the core of everything with this question. He says, okay, I've heard what all these other people say that I am, but you, who do you say that I am? And as I said earlier, your whole life, your whole eternity will be based on how you answer that one question. And I noticed that he put that emphasis on you. This has to be your answer. Think about that. You can't say, well, my mother and my father raised me to think that Jesus was such and such. Or my pastor taught me who Jesus was. He was such and such. Or my favorite writer says Jesus was such and such. My spouse says Jesus was such and such. Some of those people may have taught you rightly, 
But the answer can't be theirs. It has to be yours. Who do you say that I am? Your pastor says who Jesus is. Your mother and your father might know who Jesus is. But who do you say that he is? And right there, each one of us are at a crossroads, aren't we? Will we believe Jesus when he tells us who he is? Or will we let other people interpret who he was in their own way? And we'll just believe them. Will we believe the Bible as it explains who Jesus is, or will we believe some other source, whether it be our own thinking, our own emotions, our own opinions, other people's opinions, other religious texts that are out there? Who will we believe? Either Jesus says, either Jesus is who he said he was and who he is presented as in the Bible, either he's that or he's not, and he's a fraud. There is no middle ground. He made some very weighty and profound claims about himself. And as C.S. Lewis said, he is either liar, lunatic, or Lord. There is no middle ground between those. So each of us has to answer this central question very carefully, and not on a whim, but after doing the work to find out who he is. You don't answer a question of this magnitude flippantly. You put forth some effort. You go to the primary source about Jesus, the Holy Scriptures. So there's the central question. Now let's look at the disciples' response to that question. And like many things, Peter takes the lead here. He speaks for all of them, basically. And by God's grace, he does answer well. Number two, the correct answer. Verse 29, Peter says, you are the Christ. This is big right here. The disciples, we've already seen leading up to this point, they've been missing some very big things along the way as they've seen Jesus do miracles, they've heard his teaching and so forth. They've been missing some things. Their hearts have been hardened, their eyes have been blinded, their ears have been deafened to the full picture of who Jesus really was. And he's had to ask them several times questions like, do you not yet understand? Like the uh, blind man from Bethsaida. They're still seeing walking trees. Everything is not perfectly clear yet. But here we read Peter as the spokesman, the leading apostle, give the answer that does have some clarity. Here's what we believe, Lord. Here's what we've come to understand about you. You are the Christ. He is the Christ. Now let's not take advantage, or let's not take for granted what Peter just said. He used the word Christ. We read that word all the time in the Bible. And we maybe don't think about it. We read the words Jesus Christ in the Bible. Many times we just we don't even realize why that word's there. We almost treat it like that's his last name. Jesus is his first name. Christ is his last name. He's Jesus Christ. The word Christ is not Jesus' last name, obviously. The word Christ is the equivalent of the Hebrew word in the Old Testament for Messiah, Mashiach. It means the chosen, anointed king. It's not Jesus' name, it's his title. So notice what Peter's saying. That brings new weight to what he's saying, doesn't it? He's saying something massive here with his answer. He's saying, Jesus, I believe 
that you are the anointed one, the Messiah, the promised king from God that the scriptures have been telling us about all along. That's what he's saying when he says, you are the Christ. Isn't that amazing? That's quite a good answer, isn't it? It's a true answer. Jesus was and is that promised king. And Jesus gives Peter great approval for that answer. We, in other words, we know his answer was correct. And interestingly, we don't see that response from Jesus in Mark's account. Some say perhaps Peter was being humble because Peter probably told Mark a lot of what's in Mark. And so Peter left out the commendation of himself out of humility. But we don't know. It's not recorded in Mark, but it is recorded in Matthew. Let me read you what Jesus said. First what Peter said and then what Jesus said in return. It's up on the screen, I hope. Matthew 16 16 and 17, it says, Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Bar-Jonah, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my father who is in heaven. That's what he said. Jesus says, in response to Peter's answer, you are blessed, Peter. That answer is not from a human source, Peter. That answer comes from my Father, Jesus says. And we could look at that fact in more detail, couldn't we? Because it reveals something to us that Scripture affirms all over the place that it is a grace from God when He reveals who Jesus is to a person. It is a miracle from heaven, in other words. People don't cause that to happen. Flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, Peter. That's the same thing as saying... You didn't get that from any human, Peter. God, my Father, gave it to you, Peter. Flesh and blood doesn't come up with that kind of answer unless God reveals it to them. In other words, it's a work in the heart that God, the Spirit, the Father through the Spirit does on a person. I harp on this all the time because I believe that in our churches today, God is being robbed of the glory that he deserves for salvation. I constantly harp on the fact that salvation is a work of God. It is not primarily a human decision. Uh, the human decision has to happen, of course, but the change of heart internally has to happen first before a person will even want to make a decision for Christ. And that change of heart has to come from God. We don't cause that. That's what we mean when we say God is sovereign in salvation. He chooses to reveal the who, the when, the how, the where, it's all of his doing. The book that I've been recommending to y'all for some weeks now called The Sovereign Grace of God talks about this very thing in great detail. I wish everybody in this church would read that book. It'll change how you look at God for the better. So let me recommend it to you again. We sing <clears throat> Amazing Grace, How Sweet the Sound, right? And rightly so, because God's grace is truly amazing. But the grace of God, think about this with me. The grace of God is not the mere fact that he offers us salvation. It is that he actually causes the necessary change in our hearts and minds 
to give us the will to believe in the first place. Yes, he offers us salvation, but that doesn't go far enough if we want to plumb the depths of his grace. Because as it turns out, fallen sinners love their sin and hate the light. That's what we do by nature. We don't want salvation in our fallen state. We want our sin. And it takes a sovereign work of God in the heart before anybody will come to him. And so the depth of God's grace is seen in the fact, not just that he offers us salvation, but that he goes in and does heart surgery on people who want nothing to do with them, with him. He grants them the ability to finally see and to finally want to come. That's God's grace, not just the opportunity for salvation, but the actual fleshing it out in real life, bringing us life, taking the blinders off, unstopping the ears, all of it. And if God's done that for you today, then you, along with Peter, are blessed. Do you believe that? Jesus said it of Peter. It's true of you as well. You have a priceless gift that you did not cause to be given to you. Listen to what R.C. Sproul said about that. He said, the question Jesus posed to his disciples is the ultimate question for us. Who do you say that I am? Do you believe that Jesus is the Messiah? When we stand up publicly and join a church, we declare to our friends, our neighbors, and all the watching world, I believe that Jesus is the Messiah. I believe he is the Christ. I believe that he is the son of the living God. He says, if you believe that, the same benediction that Jesus pronounced on Peter is your benediction. He says, blessed are you. Because this is not something you learned in kindergarten or from the newspaper or from the TV news. Flesh and blood do not reveal this kind of information. If you believe in your heart that he is the Christ, you are blessed above all people because God has allowed you to see this truth. If you are ever downcast, anybody get downcast in here? Go ahead and raise your hand. If you are downcast, if you are ever jealous of someone else's status or possessions, anybody? If you ever cry out to God, why me, in the midst of affliction, hear these words, blessed are you. You have been enabled to recognize the pearl of great price. And if God never gives you another blessing for the rest of your days on this earth, you will have no reason to do anything else but proclaim his glory and his mercy to the whole world because the greatest blessing a human being can ever receive is the blessing of knowing him, end quote. To that I say amen, a hearty amen. And if we will view salvation and God's grace like that, we will see how blessed we really are. And we'll see how glorious God really is. And we'll give him the proper glory that he deserves. So Peter here has received, according to Matthew's account, we're kind of adding Matthew into our Mark study for a second. He has received that gift of illumination. God has enabled him to see that Jesus is the Christ, the son of the living God. And Mark has proclaimed that all along, by the way. Mark doesn't leave things out like that. The very first verse of Mark says, the beginning of the gospel of Jesus Christ, the son of God. I pray that God will reveal this truth about Jesus to every person listening to me today. I hope you come to see that by the power of God because that's the only way it'll happen if God causes it to happen. That's what we pray for. 
Now, what follows Peter's answer? Jesus tells him to keep that info quiet, at least for a time. And in many ways, that's mysterious. I don't know if I could adequately explain because the scripture doesn't tell us in detail what was going through Jesus' mind when he says things like that. I think it's partially because Jesus knows he still has work to do. And he doesn't want people trying to force him wherever he goes to become their political leader. They tried to do that in John 6, tried to force him to be king. So that might be one reason. And actually, even the disciples were accustomed to their own cultural views of who the Messiah was supposed to be to them, right? Peter said... He believed Jesus to be the Messiah. He just said that. But what was the mainstream idea of the Messiah in the first place? Well, mostly it was wrong. And that probably played into the reason that Jesus said, keep it quiet for now. Because if they went out spreading the word at this point, they might be spreading erroneous things about him, even though it was correct to say he was the Messiah. If you have the wrong idea of who the Messiah is and what he's supposed to do, your message is going to be a little off, right? So maybe he said, for that reason, don't tell anybody yet. He wants them to learn, first, what the Messiah's real mission is. So that when they finally do go out and spread the word, they're sharing the true gospel. And I think we see evidence for that when we read what Jesus says next. I don't believe this next set of scriptures, in other words, this next few verses are disjointed from what we've read so far. Jesus goes on in verses 30 to 32 about what he, as the Messiah, is going to do. So here we have, this might sound funny to you, but hear me out. We had the correct answer from Peter, but now, number three, we have the answer corrected and expounded. Let me explain what I mean by that. When we read Jesus' next words, he's saying essentially, yes, Peter, God revealed this to you. But let me clarify some things about what I, the Messiah, have to do. You, and really the nation Israel as a whole, have some wrong ideas about the Messiah. So I'm about to correct some of them. And he he begins to tell them about what? His suffering and his rejection and his death and his resurrection. You see the connection here? Yes, you're right, Peter, but your idea of the Messiah needs some fleshing out and expounding upon. This Messiah, Jesus says, me, the Messiah, I'm not going to be this Jewish political king who comes in, like many people believe, and wipes the Romans off the map, those people who are oppressing you, and he wipes every other enemy of God off the map, He's not going to bring in his physical armies as a military commander. He's not going to do the things that you are expecting, wrongly expecting. He says, here's the real mission of the Messiah. To suffer, to be rejected, to be killed, all on behalf of his people, and then rise again in victory. And he's going to do this. I'm going to do this, he says, throughout Scripture, to save my people in a more profound way than simply wiping their physical enemies off the face of the earth. I am going to rescue them from a mightier, more sinister foe than that. I'm going to rescue them from sin and Satan. If you think the Romans have enslaved you, have enslaved you, 
Basically, well, there's an even more powerful master lurking than the Romans. Even the Romans are serving this master that I'm talking about. One that they're serving. One that every human being is a slave of by default. Every human being has chains around their feet and their hands and their neck. They're in a dark, cold dungeon and your master's name is sin. And Jesus comes to free them of these chains. And in order to do that, he says, I must suffer and die. And I notice that that's the word Jesus uses here. He says, he must suffer many things and be rejected and killed and rise. He must do it. It's what he came to do, in other words. They saw all the Old Testament um, passages about this promised Messiah, this king who was going to reign in righteousness and justice and so forth, but they missed this key element that he was a suffering Messiah. They read chapters in Isaiah like 52 and 53, and they thought that it was talking about Israel as a whole or something. They saw the nation Israel as the suffering servant of God. They totally missed the substitutionary nature of it when it says that this suffering servant was pierced for our transgression. He was crushed for our iniquities. Upon him was the chastisement that brought us peace, and with his wounds we are healed. Isaiah 53, 5. That's not talking about Israel. It's talking about someone whom God was going to send to heal Israel, who would suffer on behalf of Israel's sins and for the sins of anyone of any people group who would ever come to him for salvation. They missed those things about this suffering that the Messiah was going to go through. And so Jesus, in love and grace and patience, gives them remedial theology 101 here. He's correcting bad ideas on the one hand, and he's Wow, if we think about it this way, he is making an incredible statement and prediction on the other hand. He's showing them that the Messiah's victory is much greater than just setting up some physical kingdom. He's come to set up a massive spiritual kingdom in the hearts of his people. And for that to happen, he's got to atone for what separated his people from God in the first place, their sin, so he's got to go to the cross. He's got to be killed on their behalf for their sin so that they can be right with God. He's got to become the spotless lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, as John the Baptist said. And in the midst of all this, it is absolutely astonishing to read about Jesus accurately predicting his own suffering and rejection and death and resurrection before it all happened. Who does that? Who could do that? Only the Son of God. This wasn't a man who was a product of fate or bad politicians or Roman brutality. He came for a specific purpose. And he lets his disciples in on it ahead of time. He knew exactly what the mission was ahead of time. He didn't hide it from them. Verse 32 says, he said these things to them plainly. No parables, no hidden meaning. He just comes out with it. Guys, let me tell you something. This is what's going to happen to me. I'm going to suffer much. I'm going to be rejected by the very people who, are supposed, who say they're looking for the Messiah. And I'm going to be killed. And after three days, I'm going to rise again. I think it probably went right over their heads for the most part. At this moment, it did. 
They, they just didn't understand that type of talk from a man who they believed was the Messiah of Israel. And we see Peter demonstrating that fact by the way he responds to Jesus' prediction. It says, Peter rebuked Jesus. Verse 32, can you imagine that? Rebuking Jesus. It lets you into the kind of man Peter was. I'm not saying he was an evil man. He meant well, I think, but he was bold. Rebuking Jesus. He took Jesus aside and rebuked him. No doubt of good intentions, but Peter was dead wrong. He thought Jesus just wasn't trusting his followers that they would protect him. We'll protect you, Lord. Don't talk about how you're going to suffer and die and all that. Don't you trust us to protect you? We're with you. Don't talk like that. And we remember something that Peter would later say. Jesus predicted that Peter would deny him three times. And Peter even then says, if I must die with you, I will not deny you. Mark 14, 31. And then the verse says, it's not just Peter. The verse says, and they all said the same. All the disciples thought that they would die protecting their master. Little did they know that, that in their weakness, they'd all run and forsake Jesus in his time of need. But God, in, in his grace, he would restore all of them. He would not, they would not fully and finally deny Jesus, but they would in a moment of weakness and out of self-preservation, they would run. And that's what's coming. But for now, Peter's very confident in himself. And he takes Jesus and kind of quietly rebukes him for thinking that he would even need to suffer and die. And it's there that we see one last point for today. Number four, a strong Warning. When Peter rebukes Jesus, Jesus dishes out one of, if not the strongest rebuke in the entire gospel accounts. And it's aimed at one of his closest disciples, Peter. He says, Get behind me, Satan. For you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. Wow. Isn't it fascinating that Peter went from giving this wonderful confession, you are the Christ, to being rebuked by Jesus just a few seconds later and likened to Satan himself. J.C. Ryle reads that and he says this, we have here a humbling proof that the best of saints is a poor, fallible creature. He goes on to say, here was ignorance in Simon Peter. He did not understand the necessity of our Lord's death and would have actually prevented his sacrifice on the cross. Here was self-conceit in Simon Peter. He thought he knew what was right and fitting for his master better than his master himself and actually undertook to show the Messiah a more excellent way. And last but not least, Simon Peter did it all, he says, with the best intentions. He meant well. His motives were pure, but zeal and earnestness are no excuse for error. A man may mean well and yet fall into tremendous mistakes, end quote. Oh, man. How fallible we are, aren't we? Even the leading apostle, Peter, he did not see everything clearly. He misspoke. He had misplaced zeal at times. He was setting his mind on the things of man, not on the things of God. 
If we remember that, it will humble us to remember we are so fallible. And if we remember that also, it'll help us be patient when we're dealing with someone else who's thinking wrongly as well. We don't get it all right all the time. Be patient with them. Teach them patiently. Remember that you're still seeing walking trees sometimes yourself. So it's very humbling to see Peter being rebuked so strongly by the Lord. What a roller coaster ride. You are the Christ. And the music swells. And Peter and Jesus says, Blessed are you, Simon. God revealed this to you, not flesh and blood. And the music swells again. And then Peter gets excited. And Jesus said, let me tell you what I'm going to do. I'm going to die and suffer. And the music turns a little darker. Peter says, come here, Lord. Takes him over off to the side. I don't want to hear you talk like that, Lord. We're going to protect you. Jesus says, get out of here, Satan. And the music gets dark again. And Peter feels like a sheep, probably. What a roller coaster. But what I really want us to see, I think that in this strong warning, there is some very warm undertones. I almost worded this point in the outline that exact way, but I thought it would look too weird or seem too weird at first. So I just left it as a strong warning. But I wanted to say a strong warning with warm undertones. Here's what I mean. To Jesus, anyone or anything who would try to stop him from accomplishing his mission to save lost sinners is doing Satan's work. And so when I began to, review, to, to view this sharp rebuke in that light, it changed for me. I think it reveals Jesus' heart to us. Let me illustrate it this way. It's like a soldier geared up, wanting to go into battle to save some helpless children who have been imprisoned by some evil overlord, let's say. And the battle is fierce in that area. It's a terrible area where they're at. And some people are telling this soldier, no, 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 no. You can't go in there. You'll be killed. It's too dangerous. And the soldier, with a heart of love for those children, takes a sharp tone with those people. And he says, I will not sit here while they rot in a cell and eventually die. I'm going to save them. That's something like what we see here from Jesus. Peter's saying, Lord, come on. You don't have to suffer and die. What are you talking about? And Jesus says, you get behind me, Satan. You're talking like Satan, Satan would love nothing more than to derail this mission. He tried to do it in the wilderness, and I resisted. He tried to tell me if I'd give him all, or if I would just bow the knee one time, he'd give me all the kingdoms of the world. Well, if I'd have done that, Peter, all humanity would have been lost. And that's exactly what Satan would have wanted. And you, Peter... You don't realize it, but you're talking the same way. You're thinking that I, as the Messiah, I can just take all the glory and the power without going through any of the suffering, but that's not why I'm here. My people are in there, in the dungeon, with chains on, dying. The people who I created whom I love dearly are suffering in a dungeon of sin with no hope of ever delivering themselves and I go to rescue them. And if anyone or anything 
including you, Peter, gets in my way, it ain't going to happen. You need to get behind me. Quit thinking man-centered thoughts and get on board with my mission. God has sent me to seek and save the lost. (laughs) I love that. That changes the whole view of Jesus' rebuke in my mind. You want me to not suffer for these people? Everybody's doomed if I go your way, Peter. I'm going to save people. Aren't you glad Jesus didn't follow man's plans? Because what if he would have took Peter's advice? What if he would have embraced the... uh, What if he would have embraced all the popular Jewish views of what he was supposed to be as the Messiah? As well-meaning as Peter was, his plan would have resulted in humanity being deprived of its only Savior it has ever known or ever will know. But Jesus doesn't budge. He comes to do the Father's will 100% to the T. And he sovereignly even predicts exactly what is going to happen step by step. And knowing all that doesn't depress him or turn him into a woe is me type of guy. We see him having compassion on people, loving people, healing people, all the while knowing what's going to happen to him. Amazingly, he knew all that and he goes through with it to save us. Isn't that amazing? What do we owe him then? What should our worship be like? Just consider these questions with me. I'm about to close. Is half hearted worship appropriate for such a Savior? Is half-hearted obedience appropriate for the one who would stop at nothing to save us from the pit of hell and death and God's wrath? Far be it from us to live that way. This is the one who set his face like flint toward Jerusalem and he walks that lonely road to the cross, eventually abandoned by his own disciples stricken by God himself for our sins to rescue us out of the prison of sin, a prison of our own making, by the way. And in many ways, the gospel of Mark, as we move from this point forward, just tells us about that road to Calvary. That's the road that we're on now. And then outside of Mark, the rest of the New Testament just tells us all the ramifications of what Jesus did when he was doing all this. Praise God that his plans were carried out, not man's, right? We'd be hellbound right now with zero hope if man's idea of the Messiah was accurate. But instead, our Lord Jesus Christ, as Hebrews says, who for the joy that was set before him, the joy endured the cross, despising the shame, and is seated at the right hand of the throne of God. And because he's risen, we too are going to rise with him one day. And because he is king, we get to reign with him one day. What a God. I asked you just a minute ago, what kind of worship does the Savior deserve? What kind of obedience does the Savior deserve? Well, just a teaser for next time. In the very next section, we're going to see some very profound things that our Savior says to us that's centered around that idea. So we'll look at that next time. Would you stand to your feet and let's just pray together? Father... Thank you for your willingness to send us your son, the promised Messiah, to suffer and die and rise again on our behalf. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for your determination in the face of people who both knowingly and unknowingly would deter you off of your mission.
You did not allow them to. Thank you that we have a Savior. We have a spotless lamb offered on the altar for us. And thank you, Holy Spirit, for giving us new eyes to see and ears to hear and a heart and mind to believe who Jesus is as taught in the scriptures. Lord, I pray that many others will come to know you through considering perhaps this very passage or perhaps the longer study through this gospel of Mark. Reveal yourself to dead sinners and call them out of the grave. We thank you that we, you have the power to do it and the willingness to do it. And Lord, lastly, help us not to rob you of your glory by trying to say that any of this was our own doing. Help us to think of your grace in the proper scriptural light that salvation is all of you. We pray this in the name of the Christ, the Son of God, our Lord Jesus, and for his glory, amen.